Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we pray that you would pour out a spirit of understanding of your, your truth. May your truth become the fuel of our worship, the fuel of our life. We pray, Father, that this passage here in verses 31 to 34 would take root within us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 831. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now last week, before we dive into these verses, let's just go back a little bit and review verses 29 and 30. In verses 29 and 30, God lays out his golden chain of salvation. There are five unbreakable links to this chain. And those links are, and you guys can repeat them with me if you remember, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Five links. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is not simply that God knows ahead of time what will happen, although he does, but it also includes the idea that God has chosen to set his love on a particular group of people. That's what the word know means often in Scripture. It means to have an intimate relationship with. Adam knew his wife Eve, so there was an intimacy of relationship. God has foreloved his people. Predestination. That refers to the fact that God has already determined the destination of all the people that he has foreknown. He, he has already determined where they're going to end up at. And where they're going to end up at, according to verse 29, is that they're all going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Perfectly. Body and soul. Their bodies will be redeemed. Their souls will be redeemed. There'll be no presence of sin, no suffering, no sickness, no death, no pain. It's going to be gone. And they're going to be brand new people, completely conformed to Jesus. So, foreknown, predestined. Third one is called. The ones that God has predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, he calls. And really, calling is synonymous with regeneration. I didn't make this point last week, but those two ideas are really the same thing. The effectual call means that God has made alive sinners who were dead in trespasses and sins. Their hearts have been changed. They've become a new creation in Christ. They, like the text this morning, God has written their, his law upon their hearts they become a new person on the inside. God calls them out of darkness into light. And then the fourth link is justification. God pronounces them righteous. Even though they're still guilty, they still commit sin, they're not perfect, but God takes the righteousness of Jesus and covers them like a, a beautiful mink coat. He puts it over them so that when he looks on this sinner, he sees Christ's righteousness. Christ takes his sin Christ gives him his own righteousness. And then the last one is glorification. That's when this 
sinner has been called, justified, and ends up being completely conformed to Jesus' image. He receives a body like Christ's, and his soul is holy like Christ's. He doesn't sin anymore, and he enters into everlasting enjoyment of God and everlasting glory. So do you see in verse 29 and 30, God is giving this sweeping eternal plan of salvation. Verse 28 ends, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, 29 and 30 is the purpose of God. He's explaining God's purpose of salvation. God's purpose of salvation starts in eternity past with us being foreknown. That's the doctrine of election. God has chosen to set his love on a particular group. It continues all the way into eternity future with us being glorified with him. No possibility of ever being lost. No sin ever staining us with the presence of God forever. Okay. Now, in verse 29 and 30, another thing we need to understand is that there are no dropouts along the way, and there are no additions along the way either. If you look at the Greek interlinear, it becomes really clear on this point. And the old New American Standard, before they updated it, also made this very clear. It says, those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And all the way through the five links of the chain. So the very same group that starts off with being foreknown is the exact same group that ends up being glorified. Nobody drops out. And nobody's added. It's the same group God is working with from eternity past all the way into eternity future. Now that brings us to verse 31, where Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? I get the impression that when he wrote that, he's saying, what can we possibly say to this majestic, wonderful, glorious, mind-boggling plan of God that is so secure and so confidence-building, what can we possibly say? It's like he was left stunned and speechless before God on his knees saying, Lord, what shall we ever say to these things? It's almost too good to be true, this plan that you have. But then he asks two more questions. He says, if God is for us, who's against us? In verse 31. And who will separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 35. We're going to deal with the first question today and the second question next Sunday. The question we want to deal with this morning is this one. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, just meditate on those words. If God is for us, if God is for us, that tells us that God's not against us. If God is for you, it tells you that God is on your side. It's like if you're in an army facing the enemy, God is right next to you in the trench. He's on your side. He's for you. This is talking about all of the resources and all of the power of God being for you, being at your disposal, being leveled towards you for your good. Now, at one time, the Bible says we were God's enemies. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, we were enemies of God until we were converted. And there was a sense when we were enemies that God had to be against us because of our sin. 
But there's another sense now that we've been brought into his kingdom and he's washed away our sin, that he's absolutely for us. It's his love, his all-conquering love that is for us as Christians. Now, can you think of anything that could possibly be worse than the almighty creator being against you? Against you. I is if God says I am against you, I can't think there there can't be anything worse than that, and there can't be anything better than the Almighty Creator saying I am for you. See, we're not enemies anymore; we're friends. Jesus said, "I don't call you uh, servants now; I call you my friends." I disclose to you all things that are to come. So I want you to let that little phrase ring in your ears this morning: God is for me. And even tell that to yourself. God is for me. God is for me. He's not against me. He's for me. Now, if God is for us, who is against us? What does Paul mean by that? Does he mean that the Christian has no enemies? That nobody really is against him? Well, that can't be true because Satan's against us, right? Satan would like to destroy us if he could. We have brothers and sisters around the world that are enduring great persecution, and they have enemies that would like to kill them. And you know what? Even our own hearts sometimes are against us. 1 John 3.20 says our hearts can sometimes condemn us, but God's greater than our hearts. So Satan's against us. Physical enemies are against us. Our hearts sometimes can be against us. Paul is not turning a blind eye to the fact that we have real enemies. When he says, if God is for us, who is against us? He doesn't mean we, nobody's against us. What he means is that nobody can su- successfully stand against us. Nobody can conquer us. Nobody can thwart the sovereign purpose of God in our salvation. What he's saying there is that nobody can bring a charge against God's elect. He's saying nobody can condemn the child of God. He's saying nobody can separate us from the love of Christ. If God's for you, nobody can stop what God is doing in your life. Nobody and nothing can stop it. I talked last week about the invincible purpose of God. So great that nothing can stop it. (laughs) And God's love towards his people is just like that. So we know that we have enemies because Paul says in verse 35, he mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. In verse 36, he says, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. In verse 38 and 39, he talks about death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things come, powers, height, and depth. All these created things as hypothetically trying to separate us from the love of Christ. But Paul says it can't be done. It just can't be done. So, after asking this question in verse 31, if God is for us, who can successfully stand against us? He gives three reasons why no one or no thing can successfully stand against the child of God. First reason is in verse 32. God did not spare Christ, therefore he will give us everything else we need. That's, if we're to boil down the argument of verse 32, that's it. God did not spare his own son. Therefore, he's not going to spare anything that you and I need to get to glory. That's the context here. Remember verse 30. The last thing he talked about was us being glorified. When he says, 
He will freely give us all things. He's talking about all the things we need to be glorified, to get to heaven, to get to be with Jesus forever. So let's meditate on verse 32. Who did God not spare? His own son. His own son. That's the remarkable thing here, the person that God was willing not to spare. The Bible calls him the only begotten son of the father. When Jesus was baptized and there at his transfiguration, God spoke publicly from heaven. And he said the same thing on both occasions. This is my what beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God's beloved son. In Colossians 1.13, it says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Or Jesus says in John 17.24, You loved me before the foundation of the world. And in these verses, we get a sense of the incredible depth of love between the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. This, this great, deep, eternal love that they share between themselves. So the father loved the son, and the son was the greatest treasure that the father had, and he did not spare that greatest treasure, that greatest love relationship that he had. He gave him up. Now this was, it's incredible to consider what the father was willing to give. I mean, who's he get, what's he getting out of the deal? <laughs> He's getting us, right? I mean, big deal. He's giving up Jesus. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but God was willing to sacrifice his greatest treasure in order to reconcile us back to himself. The father understood the sufferings of the son before he sent him. He understood the rejection that the son would face, the shame he would face, the degradation, the spitting, the beating, the mockery, the scourging, the nails, the spear, the thirst, the agony, and the death, God knew all of that, and he did not spare his own son. He could have. He could have made a decision, the whole human race can go to hell. I don't care. I want my son. But he didn't make that decision. Instead, he gave over his son to save a great number of humanity. Now, think about this with me. What kind of argument is Paul making in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul is coming up with the greatest obstacle to our salvation that he can conceive of. The greatest obstacle is that God is going to have to not spare Jesus. It's like the Mount Everest of obstacles in God's path. And if God can get through that obstacle, which is the hardest thing he could possibly do, everything else is easy. If he can make the most difficult sacrifice, everything else will be very, very easy for God to do. So what God is, what Paul is doing is he's making an argument of from the greater to the lesser. If God is willing to do the greatest thing, surely he's going to do the easy thing, the lesser thing. You see how he, the argument flows? It's like if somebody was very rich and they went out and bought a $10 million house. You know, the, one of those mini mansions, 10,000 square feet, which sometimes our company cleans, huge houses. Uh, so they, they go out and buy a $10 million house. Well, of course they're going to spend a few thousand dollars to put furniture in the house. 
right? If God's going to go to the expense of not sparing his son, then he's going to be willing to freely give us everything else we need to get to glory. He's already given the greatest thing that shows you that he's absolutely committed to you. Everything else is chicken's feed. It's pennies compared to hundreds of dollars. So what do you think Paul is thinking of when he says, will not he also with him freely give us all things? All things. I don't think he's talking about cars and homes and boats and vacations. Those aren't the all things that he's talking about. What else do we need to arrive at glory? We need grace to endure to the end, don't we? The Bible says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. We need God's grace to continue to endure to the end. We need grace to continue to believe in Christ and to continue to repent of sin. We need grace to pursue holiness. The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. We need comfort when our hearts are broken. We need peace when we are anxious. We need joy when we're depressed. We need fellowship when we're lonely. We have all these needs. And I believe those needs are included in the all things of verse 32. Everything you need to get from here to glory, God is going to give you because he's already given Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. It, he, he's going to do it. He's committed to you. Absolutely committed to you. And it says here in verse 32, he's going to give them freely. That means there's no strings attached. He doesn't expect you to somehow repay him back for these things that he's going to give. He's a generous God who loves to bestow these gifts on his children. Now, let's also consider who the promise is for in verse 32. It's similar to 828. It's not a promise that is for the entire human race. Let's read it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who's the us all and who's the us of verse 32? We'll just read the next verse. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's the us all of verse 32. God's elect is the ones that he foreknew, the ones that he chose to set his love upon, the ones that he's taking to glory. That's also the us of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who's against us? Well, that takes us back to verse 29 and 30. Who is the us of verse 31? It's the us that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It's the same group all the way through the passage. So this is not a promise God is making to the entire human race. It's a promise he's making to his church, his bride, his people, his elect. Now, that's the first reason. The first reason why we know that no one can successfully stand against us is because God didn't spare his own son. Therefore, he will give us everything we need. Let's go to the second one. The second reason is because God has justified us. Therefore, no one can remove our justification. Let's look at the verse in Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
Now, let's also read verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? The two questions here are, are very similarly related. Who can bring a charge against God's elect is related to who can condemn. I don't know if you're seeing this, but if someone can successfully bring a charge against you and make it stick, you can't be justified because you're guilty. And if someone can condemn you, then you can't be justified either because you're guilty before God. So these two questions are really the same kind of question posed from different angles. The, the two questions of verse 33 and 34 deal with our justification. And what Paul is asking is, here, here's the big point. Can anyone or anything remove your justification once you've been justified? In other words, once God pronounces you justified, can anyone unjustify you? Can anyone come up with a charge and make it stick so that God says, well, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, I guess he can't be justified because of that. Nobody can do that. The question is not whether anyone will ever try to bring a charge against God's elect, because we've already seen Satan will do it. Revelation 12.10 says he's the accuser of the brethren. He's going to try to make a charge stick. He'll try. Your own hearts sometimes will condemn you before God. And sometimes human enemies will do that. They'll try to bring a charge against God's elect. It's not that no one will try to do that. No, they will. But no one can make that charge stick against God's people. Now, why not? What's the reason he gives us? God is the one who justifies. That's the reason. What does he mean by that? He means God is the judge. God is the highest judge, the supreme judge of all the universe. There's no one higher than him. There's no court of appeals. <laughs> when God makes renders a verdict, re renders a decision, Brian Anderson is justified because Christ's righteousness is applied to him by faith. When God makes that decision, no one can overturn it. There's no higher court that anyone can appeal to to try to get me unjustified. God has made that decision. He's given the verdict. Now you say, well, but what if Satan's able to, to bring a charge against me to the Lord? Well, do you think God didn't know about that sin when he justified me? <laughs> Did God not know the future? Did he not know that I was going to fall in this area or make a, a terrible decision here or fail God in this area? God knew all about that stuff. It's not like Satan can bring some dirt against me that God didn't know was coming. Right? When God pronounced you and I justified, he knew all the sins we were going to commit in our future, and he still pronounced us justified because of Christ. And God won't change his mind. Once he has made that decision, he's made it. He's not going to change his mind. In order for a justified person to become unjustified, someone else is going to have to wrest God from his throne, tear him off the throne, and then ascend to that throne in God's place. Now, do you think that God is going to let that happen? But if God is the one who justifies, someone else is going to have to overturn God's decisions, and that's impossible. So there's the second reason why no one can successfully be against the child of God. God has justified him, and no one can overturn it. Let's look at the third one. 
No one can successfully be against the child of God because Christ has bore our condemnation. Therefore, no one can condemn us. That's his point in verse 34. He says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He tells about the work of Christ. In verse 33, he tells about the judgment of God, the verdict of God, the Father, and that being a reason why no one can be against us. In verse 34, he looks to Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he points to four different things that Christ has accomplished. His death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. If you want to know whether anybody can be against you, look at Christ on that cross, look at the empty tomb, watch him ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and then watch him pour out his heart as he prays and intercedes for his people. And then you get the sense, hey, who would dare try to successfully stand against a child of God? Impossible. When Christ's work, when his work is so committed to his people. So let's think about those four aspects of the work of Christ. First of all, it says Christ Jesus is he who died. What happened when Jesus died upon the cross? Well, let's, let's go to a, fir- a few passages of Scripture that will help us really get a grasp of this. Galatians 3, verses 10 and 13. Galatians three ten says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So what's Paul basically saying there? Basically, if you don't always obey the law all the time, you're under a curse. Right? You're cursed. But then look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeem means to set free. Christ has set us free by the, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's how he did it. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So when it says Christ Jesus is he who died, it means Christ Jesus is he who died to took your, your curse. To stand in your place and take the punishment and wrath and penalty that you should have taken that your sin deserved. Christ Jesus, that's what we mean when we say Christ is our substitute. It's like, you you know the story of Barabbas? Barabbas was a robber and a murderer, an insurrectionist. And he was supposed to be on that middle cross between those two thieves. But he was released and Christ took his place. Barabbas is a portrait of us. We should have taken that middle cross. We should have been hanging on that tree. We deserve to pay for our sins through death. But Jesus Christ bore the curse intended for us because of our sin. He took it on himself. And that's what we find also in Isaiah chapter 53, a great chapter on the crucifixion of Christ. In verse 5 and 6, it says, But he, that is, this Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, 
but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see the substitution going on there? It talks about our transgressions, our iniquities, our well-being, and our healing. And then in verse 6, it talks about our going astray, our turning to our own way. But in spite of all of the negativity of the human race, the, the sin, the mess-ups, the failures of the human race, Christ stands in their place. He was pierced. See, we should have been pierced. He was crushed. We should have been crushed. He was chastened. We should have been chastened. He was scourged. If you saw the Passion of the Christ, you know what a scourging was like. We should have faced the scourging. We should have had our backs torn to ribbons to look like hamburger meat because we have rebelled against our Maker. We have deliberately sinned and followed our own path and our own way against God. But Jesus Christ steps in and he takes exactly what should have gone to us. We were under a curse. Christ bore the curse. Christ bore the condemnation that was ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, God, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God made Christ sin for us on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 8.1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So going back to Romans chapter 8, the first thing you need to think about is if you want to know that God is for you and that no one can stand against you, is that Jesus Christ died for you. And his death was not in vain. He bore the very wrath of God that should have been leveled against you. Second thing he did is he was raised. Now, why is that important? Is it important that he was raised? It sure is. It sure is. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. Okay, think on that. It, so, that might sound kind of vague and unclear to you, but think about that. Jesus was raised because of our justification. I understand that to mean that because Jesus had paid the full price for your and my justification, there was no more reason for him to stay dead, to stay in the tomb. And so God brought him out as a proof that your justification had been achieved by his death. This is proof positive that the death of Jesus is sufficient to take away your condemnation forever. He paid for your justification. And so God says, all right, I'll, I'll bring about a historical event, something that took place in history, whereby you can look back to that day in history and you can know that because of this, I know that Christ actually did take away my sin. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Christ Jesus is he who is at the right hand of God. It says in verse 34. Now, why would that be important? 
Well, it's because the right hand of God is the place of power and authority and honor. In Ephesians 1, verse 19, Paul says this, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So when it says here that Christ Jesus is He who ascended to the right hand of God, it's saying that Jesus right now is in the place that is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name. There is nobody who can rival the power or the authority of Jesus Christ. He's in the highest spate. He said uh, when he had risen from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has it all. He has it all. He's the king. He's, he's no longer a suffering servant. He is the victorious, ruling, reigning king of the universe today. And if that's the case, don't you know he's going to use that authority and power for those that he is for? If you're his child, he's going to exercise that authority and power to protect you from the enemies that would try to stop you from getting to glory. And he's going to use that power and authority on your behalf to bring you to glory. So he died to remove your condemnation. He was raised to prove that your condemnation was actually removed. He sits at the right hand of God with all power to funnel that power to you when you need it, to give you the grace to make it to glory. And then the final thing is that he is also the one who intercedes for us. Verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who intercedes for us. He pleads the merit of his death for us. This is one of the, the works of Christ that we don't really think about as often, but it is really crucial. We have a high priest who loves us and, and pleads the merits of his death on behalf of all of his people in the world. And we have an example of his intercession in John chapter 17. And we have an example of some of the things that he pleads for in John 17. John 17, 11, 17, and 24, they tell us that he pleads that the Father would keep them. He pleads that the Father would sanctify them. And he pleads that the Father would enable them to behold Jesus' glory. So Jesus is interceding for all of his blood-bought children. Father, keep them. Father, sanctify them. Father, bring them home so that they can behold my glory. Now, do you think that the prayers of Jesus are going to fall on deaf ears? Or do you think that the prayers of Jesus are going to be answered? I don't think there's any question about that, right? When Jesus prays that the Father would keep and sanctify and bring us home, God's going to do those. He's going to keep those uh, prayers. He's going to answer them. So if that's true, can anyone condemn us? It's not a chance. Now, what was the design of the Holy Spirit when he inspired Romans 8, 28 to 39? That's what I want you to think about. What, what did God want to do for his people in this great, great passage of Scripture? Why is it in our Bibles? Well, I want you to think about two emphases that are in this passage. From 28 to 39, there's two great emphases. Number one is the love of God. 
It comes up first in verse 29 when it talks about us being foreknown. And we've already seen that that is another way of talking about him for loving us. To be foreknown is to be foreloved. It's for God to set his affection and his love upon. Um, it also continues in verse 31 when he says God is for us. It means he's for us in his love. It, it comes across in verse 32. He loved us so much that he didn't spare his own son, but delivered his son up for us all. It comes across in verse 33. God loved us enough that he has justified us and pronounced us righteous. Verse 34, God loved us enough that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to rise for us, to ascend for us, to intercede for us. It comes up in verse 35 when he asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing or no one. It comes up again in verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It comes up again in verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's this emphasis on the love of God here. Do you see that? God's love is being mentioned continually throughout the passage. But secondly, there's an emphasis on our absolute rock-solid security. And we can do the same thing. We can just walk through the passage to show you that. Verse 29 and 30 say that every single person who is justified is also glorified. Verse 32 tells us that if God has already sent Jesus Christ to die for us, then he's going to give us everything else we need to make it to glory. Verse 33 tells us that no one can do anything to unjustify us and no one can do anything to condemn us. And then he winds up by listing seven enemies to our faith in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Listing some of the most horrendous and difficult things that we might ever face in life. And he says, none of those can separate you from the love of Christ. And then he goes into a detailed list in verse 38 and 39, listing every other possible thing he can conceive of that might be able to separate you from the love of Christ. And he lists all of them. And then he says, or any other created thing. If I haven't listed the one that you're thinking about, it's included here. If it's not God, it's created. <laughs> and there's nothing under God that has been created that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you see the rock-solid security that he's laying out for the child of God? I didn't always believe that, our, that I was secure in Christ. It took 12 years of my Christian life to figure that out. <laughs> I had been walking with Jesus 12 years until I finally saw it and really embraced it. And this is one of the passages that is just, it's a slam dunk for me. I, I don't know how else to understand what Paul is saying other than nothing. If you're his child, if you're foreknown, you're going to heaven. <laughs> and he's going to make it so that you make it there. So those are the two emphases, the love of God and the security of the Christian. And so I believe Paul's point from this passage is this. He wants you and I to have such a firm, 
unshakable security and God's everlasting invincible love that we can go through anything, any suffering of life and come out the other side still maintaining our faith and our love for Jesus Christ. This is not a passage that says that God is going to give you an easy, comfortable life and he's going to add eternal security to that and everything's going to be rosy. If you read the passage, he's talking about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He's talking about things that, that can devastate or wipe out a person. But he says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So his point is not... Just live a carefree, happy, comfortable life with no problems and you're going to be eternally secure. I think his point is rather uh, God's promise of eternal security is there to free you from pursuing earthly comfort so that you can give your life away in the pursuit of God's glory because you're secure in him. Nothing can strip you. Nothing can rob you from his hand. So we can face tribulation, whatever that tribulation looks like. We can face famine. We can face death in the face. We can look at it in the face. Whatever Satan would want to mete out to us, just like he did to Job. Job came through that, didn't he? Wasn't separated from the love of God, which was in Christ Jesus our Lord. He came out the other end full of faith, although he suffered greatly. That's the point of Romans chapter 8. No matter what Satan hurls at you, if God has foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you, he's going to glorify you. And you need, to, you need to think about that and bask in the love of God. Like if, it's, um, if the love of God is like this great big bathtub of ink, you need to just get in that bathtub and sink down and let the ink soak into every pore of your body. You, you need to feel it. You need... You need to embrace it and believe that God loves you with an everlasting love. And that's why with cords of loving kindness, he drew you. He called you because of this everlasting love towards you. If you're like me, once I, I had no real security. I thought, well, if I just try hard enough, maybe I'll make it. <laughs> that was my attitude. I've got to really struggle. And I still have that attitude that the Christian life is a fight. And you do struggle in the Christian life. No doubt about that. But I also see that I am going to fail God at one time or another because I have this remaining sin in my life. And because I've seen it in my life, no matter how hard I try, there is still remaining sin. It's not an excuse. That's just reality. But in spite of all that, I've got a God who loves me. And a God is absolutely committed to me. And a God is going to bring me into his everlasting arms. And so do you. If you love Jesus, just go back to verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Do you love God? That's what you need to ask yourself. Do I love God? Do I love God? I'll know that by seeking to obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Do I want to obey Jesus Christ? And am I willing to? doesn't mean you're going to be perfect at it, but you're going to make effort. You're going to strive towards obedience because you'll love Christ. And not only that, but to those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God, it's because God has called you according to his purpose, which is laid out for us through the rest of this chapter. So folks, you can rest 
It's not all about your perfect performance. It's about the absolute rock-solid commitment of God towards you in Jesus Christ. And you can rest in Him when you have no strength left, when you're just laid out, when, when you don't even have the strength to pray anymore. Sometimes we can be so grieved in a situation, we can barely pray. We can, Lord, help is about all you can say sometimes. God is committed to you even in those times. And God is going to bring you home. That's my, that's my strong encouragement to you today. Look to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus said, I will give you rest. He'll give you rest. Look to him. Trust him. He's there. Lord, I pray that you would help each person here to know that you're for them and you're not against them. And there's nobody or no thing in all the universe that can strip us and rob us and snatch us out of your hand because you are greater than all. Hallelujah to the great king. Hallelujah. We all give praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.